My name is Tom McNabb, and the purpose of this podcast is to deploy the rich experience of coaches. There's no such thing that's better than the products, the fruits of experience. Those are the best possible fruits. And uh, it's well worth looking back in the last uh, 10, 11 interviews we've had to see what comes from them. This doesn't mean that they cover every possible aspect of athletics coaching. They don't. I hope that collectively they'll provide those who listen to it uh, with enough interesting and provocative, challenging material to help them to improve what they do. So in a moment, we'll we'll get on to some of the great coaches in British athletics history and talking about some of the, the coaches that we've spoken to in this series. But I want to just start with a, with a tribute to someone who, who recently passed away, and that's Dick Fosbury, who, of course, changed the high jump event. Tom, just tell us a little bit about what you remember from Dick Fosbury. Luckily, I saw every single jump he did in Mexico City because I positioned myself so I could get close to what he was doing. And every time he jumped, there was total silence in the arena. This is what talking about the qualifying rounds. We're not talking about the final. Then came the final, which luckily I was directly above. You could hear a pin drop in the stadium. There was total silence because all the other jumpers were jumping straddle. And he didn't fail until he got beyond 224. He'd won it at 224. That was it. But by 1972, I would say more than half of them were jumping some form of Fosbury. And he didn't qualify, unfortunately, for the American team in, in 1972. But that was how it all started. Um, I met him at a conference I was speaking at in Madrid over 30 years ago. And I thought, I must find out how he came to do this. Although I had a pretty good idea at the back of my head that it would be the product of trial and error. And so it was to be. He had been a, a basketball player at college, but he turned up at the track one day after the track and field athletes were finishing off. And he said to the coach, all right, if I have a little jump over the high jump. And um, the coach, of course, on you go. I mean, we're finished. Now, landing areas had advanced by the mid-60s. This would be about 1965. Up to that point, the Americans had led in landing areas because in Britain, it was often ground to ground. Uh, in, in the Highland Games, it was ground to ground. In Scotland, it was ground into a ground-level sandpit. Perfectly safe. But the sort of jumps we were doing were um, scissors, and Western Roland Straddle. What had happened by 65 was that it had now become, in America at least, a big pile of sand plus a big pile of rather smelly foam. So everyone knew you'd been high jumping when you come away from that. It was possible by that point to land right on your back without getting hurt. Before that, it was quite impossible. Up until 1938, you weren't allowed to lead with your head and shoulders over the bar, but by this time you were. So he said, well, what I did, uh, Tom, is I, I went down and I uh, I thought, oh, I'll try a five-straight approach of scissor jump because I'd done that as a boy. And he said, I was quite happy with that. And I came back a couple of days later and I jumped over 175 and just pulling about again. A week or two later, I thought, well, I'll try and lie flat along the bar. That is parallel to the bar. And it was a, a semicircular run. But he says, once I did that, I got round into a position at right angles to the bar. And the next thing, I'm over one meter 
85, one meter 90, and the coach is starting to look at me and said, hey, do you fancy competing for us at the weekend? And they said, that was where it all took off from, really. The evidence is, alas, that almost certainly someone did the Fosbury flop about three years before him, but nobody knew who he was, a man called Bruce Quandy. But of course, Bruce didn't jump high enough for anyone to pay any attention to him. So Dick, quite rightly, gets the accolade of creating the Fosbury flop. Obviously, having been to many Olympic Games, having had the, the privilege of watching other great athletes, who else would you pick out as someone who really, let's say, changed athletics history that you had the privilege of, of watching? Well, too many to count, Alex. Uh, at the same Olympics, of course, I followed, I'm one of the few people still around who followed every single aspect of what Bob Beeman did because I had an athlete uh, in competition and in the qualifying in his area. There were two areas. One was right next to me in the freezing cold of that high-altitude Mexico morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning. And the other on the other side, Lynn Davis was defending it and trying to get into the final, of course, um, the next day. So with two separate groups of 10 or 12 athletes, that was, to me, one of the great things. Uh, I'd love to say that what I saw was Beeman was the product of assiduous and religious and detailed training, but I'd be totally dishonest if I said so. When I watched Beeman, uh, his very first jump, his very first jump was about a meter beyond the board. In fact, he almost put his foot into the pit. Uh, and uh, I thought, oh, well, okay. Uh, his next jump, it, it was about a foot over the board. In fact, I think his heel was on the board and his toe was, you know, another that 20 centimetres further forward. So we've got one jump to go and he's out of the Olympics. So he goes along and talks to Ralph Boston, his colleague, who was a great jumper, uh, and has a chat with him. And Ralph probably says, well, just take put your run up back about, about another half a metre. And even if you don't go off the board, you'll still qualify. And in he comes for his final jump, storming in, and takes off, I would think, about... 20 to 30 centimetres away from the front of the board and jumps just over eight metres, qualifies quite comfortably. But I would be lying if I said that I anticipated what I was going to see the next day. Uh, Peter Reed, the guy I was coaching, had three files. He had to go for it because I needed a personal best even just to qualify. And off I went to the other side of the stadium, sitting there with a, with a book on the metrics because we did feet and inches in those days. I wasn't up to the metrics at all, and neither were any of us. And the Americans no, did nothing in metrics. And we were, I was right above the, the long jump board with Alan and one or two others. Wolf Page was there as well, the late Wolf Page. Round number one. Beeman comes storming in as if there's no board there at all, just as if he's just going to keep going. Storms in, hits a full eight inches of board. That's the full board, 20 centimeters. But he lands beyond. I mean, it's a bad landing. He gets his heels really nowhere near in front of him because he's he's gone. He's taken that little bit longer in the air. It was so high that, of course, his hitch kick has finished too early. He did a one-and-a-half hitch kick. The judge, the wee girl sitting on the, I can see her now, sitting on the right of the board, I had two flags, one red and one white. White one for a, a, a genuine jump, the red one for a foul jump, and she paused for a moment. And I could see, because I was watching very carefully, it was very close to the front of the board. Up went the white flag. Wow. But the problem was that Beeman had jumped too far. Why? 
because the measuring device we had in those days was a sort of vertical thing. You slid that the judge would slide it until he got in line with it, line with a jump, and then read it off the, the markers on this horizontal slide mechanism. He had got beyond that. And the world record at that time was about 830, 840. So he was, he was over half a meter beyond the world record. But we didn't know that. So absolute chaos amongst the Mexican officials. They didn't know what to do. And then came a, a bald, brusque little man from Holland called Adrian Paulin, who was, uh, who's, as we say in Scotland, smiled with difficulty. He immediately uh, demanded that a steel tape be brought. We're all hustling around to find a steel tape. That was allocated somewhere, God knows where, and brought across to the long jump runner. Above it, myself and Alan and all the others were seething, total waiting for this jump. They put down the steel tape, they look at it, there's about three or four other officials look at it, they all start shaking their heads, they put it down again, Holland checks it again, that's it. Then flashing up on the screen is the distance, eight meters 90. I had no idea how far that was. I knew it was well beyond the world record. And I said, I grabbed Alan by the arm and said, Alan, come, well, come on, tell me what it is. 29 feet, two and a half. No one had ever jumped over 28 feet. And we just certainly didn't think in metrics. We looked through our, my binoculars to see what, how Beeman was responding to this. When the distance was translated by one of his colleagues to him to 29 foot, two and a half, he collapsed under the ground, sobbing. I'm not surprised, so would I. <laughs> the same thing happened to me. The competition was over, for all practical purposes. Beeman, had, I think, took another couple of jumps, but that was he didn't even jump in the final three jumps. He just left it. Now, that was one of the great moments, and it was another over, over two decades later before that was beaten. And people can't beat it now. Yeah, clearly. I mean, just thinking about that, what do you think that coaches specifically can learn from athletes, be it great athletes that they coach, or just learning how athletes respond to what they're coaching them in? With every athlete, you've got to find a common language. You've got to find a language that they understand. You've got to find a, a neuromuscular model for what you're doing if it's a technical event. And it's got to be very, very clear to the athlete what you're talking about. So you share the vocabulary. And it's not going to be high tech. I doubt if Beeman received a single word of advice in his life. Although, on checking back, uh, I found before I came here, I checked that he'd actually been in the American rankings for the last two or three years before that. But he wasn't known as a world-class athlete. One of the basic elements of all coaching is to simplify. Simplify everything. Even at a high level, you simplify. And to develop a neuromuscular vocabulary on which you both agree now, in that case, it helps very much if the coach has done it himself. It does help, even if, obviously, the coach wouldn't be anywhere near as good as the athlete. But he himself is a reference point in his own body. So finding that common vocabulary is absolutely critical. That's on the purely technical side. And then the attitudinal side is another one. You know, what is your attitude towards training? And the third one is, how well you do, do you compete? Because we talk a lot about coaches uh, coaching in training, you know, in the training context, but we don't talk enough about coaches going and seeing the end product. Because after all, the end product is jumping in a competition. I don't care how far you've jumped in training. Competition is the be all and end all of it. So it's 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 a mixture of things, and uh, you've got to get on the same hem sheet, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting because 
we asked a few of our guests about what makes a great coach. Carol Jackson says empathy is important. It's about athlete first, coach second. That's right. Peter Stanley says it's about being able to speak in simple terms, what you said, being able to relate what you're doing to the athlete. Yeah. In some cases, being able to achieve multiple successes. So he was asked, okay, once he'd won the Olympic title and set a world record with Jonathan Edwards, could he do it again with another athlete? That would be a real test. And then Tony Hadley devised a system for looking at all of the male 400 meter runners, for example, and seeing how much they'd improved from juniors to senior and then seeing which coaches had improved the most athletes. So he clearly had spent a, a long time for, you know, for 20. crunching the numbers. Good for him. But what else do you think we should be thinking about when devising criteria for, for what sets a great coach apart from the rest? Very difficult because in some cases, if one takes Jonathan Edwards, who's already a world-class athlete, now, uh, one of the greatest coaches in the world was John Anderson. And now John has coached, we reckon, from zero to international level, well over 150 athletes. Yeah. Now, that covers every event from the 100 meters through to the marathon and the decathlon. Uh, Liz McCaughan, Dave Moorcroft. So I don't think any coach in the history of the sport has coached such a range of athletes from zero to hero, so to speak. And if you look at, say, the American coaches at college, they're already being handed very talented athletes already. You know, they're, they're, they're looking at guys who are already jumping nearly eight meters. I've been watching the college championships just before I came to it. And their performances are quite remarkable. And, and so it's very difficult to judge one coach against the other. Yes, yeah, also difficult to judge event versus event, track versus field, technical that's versus that's less that. technical an era versus era do you think actually that it is harder though to coach from from zero to world class in certain events oh yes i think Vault. it's a highly technical event hammer although with hammer you'd have more time in theory before the athlete reached their peak in terms of yeah. strength experience well they tend to yeah they, they tend to reach a wee bit later but I think Rolf Whittingham has been doing a lot of work recently on this. I talked to him last week as a prelude to coming. And uh, he was saying that, uh, you know, a lot of the ideas we have about when athletes mature is, is not all that accurate. They're, they often mature much earlier than we think. Some people are early maturers, even prior to being senior athletes. That's one thing. I mean, Jonathan was a very good athlete, Jonathan Edwards. But you wouldn't have picked him out as, as jumping over 18 meters when he won the English schools. My aim all the time is, are we gradually improving on what we do? And every now and again, ping, the medal arrives, and you're there. In my case, as an athlete, I had never won even a heat in my school championships until I was 17. I hadn't won anything in a field event. One day, my teacher said to me, Tom, uh, how do you find you going to Edinburgh the Scottish School Championships? I said, well, me, me, wow. And at the end of the, I was, the competition, I was only 17. I was second to an 18-year-old, Bobby Stephen. A year later, I was second in Britain. And I was, a, I was the longest jumper of any kind in Scotland. I jumped 14 metres. So, you know, I was a late developer. And I, I, I'm at a loss to predict. I've never been able to predict what people will do. 
when I first worked with Daley Thompson, he came in my decathlon course in 1974. He'd never done eight of the events. Two years later, he was in the Olympic Games. I I would never have put a penny on that. Not because I didn't think he was terrific. He was. He was, a, he was a sponge for for skills. He just absorbed them and he loved it. Well, isn't that part about if you have versatility within your, your skill set and then you have the commitment to really take on the decathlon, then the opportunity is there, right? Possibly more so with the heptathlon. There just isn't the volume of athletes who really have that drive and commitment to take on all of those events. And no doubt the coach involved plays a role in in actually understanding how to fit in all of that training. Well, it's not just a, a training. You, you've got the fact that you've got in, in the decathlon, you've got the high jump, long jump, the pole vault, you've got discus, javelin and shot and hurdles. So you've got seven te- at least seven technical events to coach. And then you've got your 400 metres and your 1,500 metres. 400 metres is speed endurance and 1,500 metres, of course, is uh, is endurance. Uh, and so the decathlon coach has got to be the most skillful coach. He's got to work out the balance between one event and the other and, and see where the points are lying at any one point. Sometimes these days, a decathlete would have a team of coaches. That's right. They'll have a jumps coach, a throws coach. Surely, Tom, that's that's a, a very modern thing to be able to pull in all of the best resources in coaching in order to help you as an athlete. You know, going back to, I know that we said in the introduction, when there was a period where there simply weren't coaches, to now having multiple coaches and their specialisms, perhaps that's part of the innovation in recent years. I don't know. I'd have to be checked. I was just checking it before I came here. Uh, Tyson Eaton. Ashton Eaton, yeah. Ashton Eaton and his wife. I mean, the danger in handing them to specialist coaches is that the specialist coach has got a technical model which is often too advanced. For instance, uh, Ashton Eaton did a step-back technique in the shot, which means left-right. And in javelin, ran off seven strides, holding the javelin in position already. Not the normal, what a javelin throw would do. And whoever coached them was a very bright guy. Yeah. What a technical model out that they could do, and they could guarantee to get some sort of mark in three shots. That's the big thing. It's to know how far you go technically. See, Daly could have been a world-class long jumper. He could have been a world-class uh, 100-meter runner. No doubt about that at all. But, but you never developed enough in any one of these. He was doing enough in decathlon to pick up big points. And, of course, you don't get the number of jumps in in a decathlon in terms of training because you've only got so much time. And you've got to get the volume of throws and jumps in. And you've got someone like uh, Katrina who has struggled with a shot. And I think she's begun to she's probably got over it now. Um, so it's it's finding that in, in the all-round events, the balance of, of what you're doing. Fatigue makes cowards of us all, but also it makes the idiots of us all. If you're knackered, you just can't do training in a technical event. You're gone, baby, gone. So in talking about the history of coaching, a reference point for many people, and it was mentioned by Mike Winch in the interview with him, was was Sam Sabini, <laughs> the, the trainer to, to Harold Abrams. <laughs> a, a great moment of athletics coaching sort of popular culture reference for many people obviously your involvement in in the chariots of fire film just tell me particularly about the role of of musabini what we know about him historically as well and coaching we say it didn't exist but but any kind of training that would have been around at that time 
Musabini came from the 19th century, really, in many ways. His methodology uh, was uh, very much based on what happened throughout the 19th century with professional athletes who'd be taken away for what they call prep for months before the game. So you'd, you'd, you'd know that you were five to one against and, and you would be off your way. And you, you, by the time he got you to the powder hole sprint, you're pretty much close to evens, but the, nobody knew it except you and your training group. Mr. Beanie, I, I was always surprised. I never had, I never talked it over with Abrams about it, that Abrams managed to get on with them because there's a film, a pathy film, and you see them training at White City, and he's got them training, doing very strange forward-leading thing, running, which I'm amazed that Harold was able to keep his balance, and doing a cross-arm action, a walking-style cross-arm action. Now, when you actually see Harold running in the Olympics, he doesn't do that. He runs vertically once you stop speed, and he's technically a good sprinter. And central to Musabini's training, I'll guarantee Abrams did not involve himself in this, was something called Black Jack. Now, Black Jack was a laxative, which would enable you to break the 100-meter record trying to get to the toilet. <laughs> because laxatives were central to the training of professional athletes. Why? It's this idea of purifying the system. Well, I'll never work it out. It started with Captain Barclay Allardyce back in about 1800 and he walked a thousand miles in a thousand hours. Don't ask me why. At Newmarket <laughs> Heath, I think in eighteen around about eighteen eleven, eighteen twelve, and he was one of the ones who who, who took these laxatives. But but it was common throughout professional days. I, I guarantee you, Harold ignored all that. So I, I often wonder what he really got out of it, uh, because I think he just picked the bits out that he thought was going to work, and because certainly he wasn't taking blackjack. I'm certain of that. Well, anyway, you you had a a great experience, obviously being involved in in the making of Chariots yeah. of Fire. What was the the highlight of the the experience for you? Well, the the, the highlight really was I'd shown the film. Um, this was when the film had been made. I was first I was pulled in to try and take a few minutes out of it because it was too long. And Warner Brothers, I think it was, didn't like it. It was two hours forty. So I went along to Teddy Crawley, who was the editor. Over at Radlett, not far from it, and and I said, no, there's nothing you can take out. We don't have enough athletics in it. And that's my view. I had seen the film with my athletes who loved it, and I enjoyed it. But David Putnam phoned me up one night. He says, Tom, could you go to the cinema at Soho Square and could you sit with Judith Chalmers on the BBC and and watch the movie because we don't have the time and and and, and it'd be nice if we got a review from Judith. So off I went. She was a very nice woman and. She said, one thing I've got to tell you, Tom, before we watch this film, it was in a wee studios that they'd use for seeing movies, maybe over 40 seats in it. One thing I've got to tell you, Tom, she said, I hate sport. Hated it at school, and I will always hate sport. So I've got to tell you that. Off went the lights. Behind us, the projector whirred away, and Chad Safai was on its way. And when the lights went on, Judith's eyes, the mascara was pouring down her face. Never forget this. He said, Tom, that was so lovely. I knew we had something. That was a big moment for me, really. That was really the big moment. I mean, there were so many moments in it in terms of my sharing it with the with the actors. They were a great bunch of guys. They were lovely men. And David Putnam was a Putnam was a particularly fine man. <laughs> Did the overall reception and legacy of the film as a whole exceed expectations in any way? And what was the reception like of the athletes 
involved and perhaps their their families. Well, say the athletes involved. Abrams isn't, wasn't with us at that time. He had died. Um, and the families liked it. Yeah. But Little's family is still around now. I was, I, was, I was talking to Little Association a few days ago. Financially, it cost $3 million to make. It made $80 million. Wow. It, its power weight ratio, as we'd say in athletics, was very, very high indeed. It will be used, I think, in the next year as the vehicle for um, to raise money for charity through the little the little community charity up in Edinburgh. I'll be speaking to them tomorrow, but this time tomorrow. So let's just finish off then, having having spoken about the past. Any reflections on the future of coaching or how, let's say, innovation like changes to tracks, changes to shoes? and other changes within the sport, how they might affect the future of the coaching or the way that coaching is having to change and adapt now? Well, I think the actual uh, thing that shoes and, and pole bot poles and javelins and things like that, um, is, that's only going to be changing marginally, you know, and it's not going to change the techniques to any good extent. The fiberglass pole did. That came in in the 19, early 1960s, and before that, people vaulted with steel poles, and before that, bamboo poles. Our room for manoeuvre is tricky. Um, and comparing the past with the present is also tricky because of the drug element. There's a, I wouldn't want to list all the events, but I would not be certain of their validity. Uh, so the big question of improvement, we know that the improvement that occurs with these new shoes for marathon, I think it'll come about 2% of them, that's pretty good. And the spikes, I'm not sure about spikes. I don't think there's 2% in the spikes. The track, again, that's only going to be very marginal. I'm not at all certain we're going to find out anything remarkable, except we may have things like you're going into a sort of little cylinder and, and lying there for a few minutes and the, and the press a button, and when you come out, they'll tell you where you, you've got muscular problems. You'll say, Alex, uh, your hamstring there, don't push your sprints for the next few days. Then we'll go back into the cylinder. Hopefully you might manage to get out of it as well. And uh, that, I think that's what will happen. We'll be able to predict much more accurately the condition of the athlete by very, very accurate measurements. Now, that will only happen to the top-level athlete. It's not going to happen to some poor soul running at the local athletics club. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think that's going to be a major factor in the future so that we can be much more precise in what we do in our training. The other thing, of course, is do does athletics stay the same? Um, do we introduce new events? These events were only chosen in 1913 when the Federation was first formed. And I've been thinking of getting on to world athletics to say, why don't we have a, a historical view of athletics in 2024, the standing high jump? No, I'm not saying in the Olympics. Standing long jump, standing triple jump, aggregate throws, that's left and right hand throws. Uh, there were all manner of events that just didn't survive beyond 1913. There's no reason why you can't bring them back. Your favourite being the, the three-legged run. The, the three-legged race record, and I'll be interested if we get a response to this. I, I think we should make an attempt on it. It's been lying since 1906, and it is two American decathletes who became, I think both became coaches afterwards, and the world record for the 100 yards is 11 seconds. 
the Americans treated the event quite seriously. I don't mean in terms of training for it and all that sort of stuff. But they even worked out the height the other guy had to be. So one guy was six foot two in this, and the other guy was about five foot ten. Don't ask me why, but that was, they'd already worked it out. They even had rules for the sack race, the Americans, the height of the sack. I think a British attempt on the world 100 yards or 100 metres, whatever, record, at all age groups, these are all waiting for us. The egg and spoon race record uh, was done by, I think, the, by the Australian girl, the Australian hurdler. Sally Pearson. Sally Pearson, that's right. It was in a street race, obviously, you know, and she died, I think, 16.5 or something like that. I mean, whether it was a valid egg, that has to be looked at very carefully. Was it an egg? And what was the size of the spoon? Because it was a bit of a wobble and it comes off while you had it. So, Sally, that I don't want to take anything away from Sally. But these records are waiting for us to attack them with vigour in Olympic year. I look forward to full ratification. Well, Tom, it's been great to to chat with you and to hear the wisdom from yourself and your experiences across many decades of coaching and also from those who've done some quite rare interviews, you'd have to say, in which they've spoken about their best memories. We've got out of them some of their knowledge and experience which might otherwise be lost and not spoken about and indeed their concerns for the future and, and what the state of the sport might look like. So uh, hope everyone's enjoyed listening and hoping you've also enjoyed being part of this. Oh, thanks very much, Alex. Thanks very much indeed, yeah.